Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comment section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Uh, the only announcement or uh, item of business I'd like to take up is I would actually ask that you guys who uh, subscribe to my channel go ahead and check out my Sensibly Speaking podcast this week. Um, I, oh, and also the video I put up on Thursday, which is my next in the series on the basics of Scientology. That is an extended length series. That's going to end up being about 20 or so videos, and it's going to include that e-meter video. It is coming. Um, I've been doing a lot of research uh, in order to, the reason why there's gaps in between those things is because I've been studying and looking at stuff, trying to figure out where Hubbard came up with some of his ideas. Um, you know, you can never be 100% sure because I can't get in the guy's head, but, uh, but you can trace things down and look at stuff and that's how what I've been researching in order to really break down the technology of Scientology and the belief system. Uh, and why it's a belief system, because Scientologists don't think that it is. So this last Thursday I posted that about the um, dynamic principle of existence, uh, the survive thing from Dianetics, and also the eight dynamics. So if you've ever had questions about those two things, uh, even if you didn't know you had questions about them, go ahead and check out that video because I think you'll get uh, a pretty good grounding in what that's all about. And then the podcast I put up yesterday is not Scientology related, but I really wish people would check out some of my other content because I would like your feedback on some of the things that I throw out there, uh, all in an effort to promote critical thinking and reason and, um, and doing my best to try to help people out. You know, it's not about, um, you know, somebody commented that this video I just posted, this the podcast I just did, was, was all about partisan politics, and I, I, quite honestly, it is not. So, you know, but I'd be very interested if anybody watches it, what, what it is about it that makes them think that. I'm, you know, it's not, that's not what this is about. Anyway, enough said about all that. Just uh, hope you guys will check those things out. And uh, also, of course, consider becoming part of my uh, Patreon campaign, as uh, a few more have done this over the last uh, week or so since I last mentioned it. Uh, very helpful definitely buys me time, definitely helps me to keep this channel going. All right, let's go ahead and get on with your questions. Kim Burton, what was your day-to-day -day life like as a Scientologist? Not just when you were in the Sea Org, but before that. How often throughout the day would your beliefs impact how you related to a situation or the choices you made, even down to which films you watched? And how did you feel when you interacted with people not in the church? Was it always in the front of your mind what would happen to them because they weren't? And even if you weren't thinking of these things consciously, do you think subconsciously they had an impact? Can you feel a difference now you are out? Kim, this is a really great question and I'm really glad you asked it um, because I haven't really thought about this at all and no one's ever really asked me about it, not the way you did. So let me tell you that my life used to be radically different on a day-to-day -day basis because of my Scientology beliefs. I always looked at the world through the filter of Scientology beliefs. And quite a bit, and I didn't really think about it much until you asked this question and I started thinking about it and went, wow, my life is like, my, my views on things are so different now. And I hadn't really appreciated how different until I started thinking about uh, the way I used to think. I used to walk, okay, so let me give you some examples. Walking down the street, I used to look around at people, anybody and everybody, 
and think, one, that one day they were all going to be in Scientology, and two, and then they just didn't know it yet, and two, that I was actually superior to them and senior to them because I was a Scientologist. It was an attitude. And I can't imagine that that attitude didn't come across to others. But I, you know, until now, I've never really thought about it a whole lot. I tried to be friendly, try to be open. But inside, there was always this kind of arrogance that must have seeped out um, that I was a superior being. And I actually had times when I would walk around outside or go to the store or do whatever with another Scientologist and we would talk about it. I mean, like literally, we are so much higher toned, right? Meaning emotionally better off than these people, all these people out here, these wogs, as we would call them. Eventually, I got a little tired of the wog moniker because uh, I felt it was just a bit much. And I started calling everybody muggles because they were the people without magic. And we in Scientology had the magic, right? So after Harry Potter, that was sort of my own substitute. And I always got a laugh from Scientologists when I did that too. It wasn't a verboten thing within the world of Scientology for me to do that because I don't think a lot of Scientologists really, um, unless they're kind of in a mood or an attitude, uh, it, they, don't, they don't really, you know, I, I, at least I met a bunch of Scientologists who also didn't particularly like the word wog. Uh, okay, so other ways that this uh, manifested was reading, watching films. Very good question uh, or sub-question there on you know, films that I watched. Absolutely. I was very much pro-Scientology celebrities, of course. Uh, you know, but also, everything I watched was through a filter of explaining what was happening in Scientology terms. If I saw, you know, people on the screen or in real life fighting or having an upset, oh, that's just their reactive mind. Or, after I did the RPF uh, in the Sea Org, oh, that's just their evil purposes. <laughs> if they only knew, right, their evil intentions that are buried deep inside them. Uh, that require Scientology auditing to get rid of. Uh, I was really big on that for a long time. After I came off the RPF, in fact, for probably about two years, I was one very calm, stable dude. I mean, nothing ruffled me, really. It was really hard to, to, to shake me. But, um, but the reason for that, one of the key reasons for it, is because I felt like I understood everyone. I really thought I had a, a handle on why everybody was acting the way that they were. And of course, it had to do with evil intentions because I had just done the RPF, which is nothing but finding and erasing evil intentions, right? That you've had for millions of years, according to Scientology beliefs. So I would see conflict. I would see problems that people were having and I felt like I could practically see through them. Uh, not to the specific evil intention or evil purpose or problem or whatever that was in their head. It wasn't like a telepathy thing. It was just more like I could, I felt calm and chill around them because I felt like I understood them in a way that they didn't even understand themselves. And I knew, and, and so I was, I, I felt like I had a kind of empathy maybe or compassion for them. And, and even if the situation didn't particularly call for it, and, you know, like they're yelling at me or they're angry or they're upset or something like that, right? And I'm feeling like I'm kind of in tune with what's going on with them and that I 
Um, just need to kind of calm them, ruffle, you know, de-ruffle their feathers and kind of chill them out and let's, let, let's get on with life. And eventually you'll get into session in science, you know, with Scientology and you'll get that addressed and you'll get that handled and then you won't be mad all the time like that or you won't feel the need to yell at people or this kind of thing, right? Um, and that was both in and outside the world of Scientology uh, that I felt that way, although I, since I was in the Sea Org at the time, I was mostly surrounded by Scientologists. Uh, let's see, other ways that this would manifest. Well, I was constantly thinking about clearing the planet. I was constantly thinking about it. How are we going to do it? How, you know, there's so many numbers. And the, and the more that the years went on, the more I started really becoming, it became very real to me that there were a lot of people in the world. Way more people than I had kind of conceptualized as a teenager, as a young guy, young man. Uh, as you know, as I got older, traveled a little bit, saw some more of the world, and um, and then and then I guess near the end of my Sea Org career, I guess the last couple of years when I was traveling around a lot, and I started interacting with more non-Scientologists, it um, it, it really started dawning on me that 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 they were not the screwed up, messed up you know, aberrated, as they say in Scientology, uh, people that the church or Hubbard presented them as. And, and so I kind of liked them even more. But I, but I kind of uh, started losing that idea that I was senior to them or something. I kind of started balancing out a little bit more the more real world, you know, experience or exposure that I had. Um, you know, just a, just a bit, right? But I was always thinking with Scientology terminology, which led me to think with Scientology concepts to explain the world around me, which kept me in the Scientology bubble. And that's why the terminology is so important, because it locks in these sort of neural pathways or something where you're always thinking in these certain terms. Every time there was an upset with someone or there was a, um, hell, even saying an upset, apparently that's not, you know, a normal English thing. People are upset. They don't have an upset. Well, that's a Scientology thing that I, you know, that's a noun. Uh, but we would call it an ARC break, right? An affinity reality communication break, right? Uh, and so I was constantly, you know, that was always filtering in my mind as to what I was observing was always, okay, I'm observing whatever, and so what Scientology principle explains this, okay, good, that's what's going on, right? And, um, and now that that's all gone, uh, or mostly gone, um, you know, I'm, I'm in mystery about a lot of things that go on in the world. And a lot of reasons why people do what they do. It's just, you know, what is going on, you know? And, uh, and so you see me on my channel here talking about various things uh, with critical thinking and science and reason and stuff like that in an effort to try to figure this stuff out. Uh, because the Scientology model clearly wasn't it. You know, so um, so the so the yearning or desire on my part to still understand people and understand what's going on in the world and why it's going on and uh, is still there, and it's still there because I you know I'm, I I want to know about this stuff so I can help people, 
and that's kind of what's always driven me. So, um, so the difference, you know, then and now is uh, that um, that I don't have those filters kind of in place anymore. That's when, you know, it's been fading away and going away and being sometimes being you know forced out of my head by me uh, because I know that it's not you know it doesn't work. It's not workable, right? Um, but even you know even to this day some of it still creeps in. But it's not. It doesn't rule my my view of the world. It's not my. It's not the 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 filter that I use anymore. So, I, I hope that answers the question. I hope I gave enough examples to make it you know somewhat understandable how I used to look at things. But basically, I was you know pretty deep into the Scientology world and the Scientology world view, and um, you know and now I'm not. Michael Blau. In a recent podcast, you denigrated the subject of spirituality as being unquantifiable and not open to the scientific method. Please consider the following analysis. Epistemology is the study of knowledge, how it is acquired and validated. Implicit in the concept is a consciousness that is doing the knowing. It is logical to observe that the subject of knowledge, the things about which the consciousness knows, is different from the consciousness itself. Thus, there are two distinct concepts, subject and object. Science is the orderly and logical methodology that pursues understanding of objects, specifically the subject's understanding. Spirituality deals with the recognition of the distinction between subjects and objects, and the subject's understanding of itself. There could be no expectation that a single method would be applicable to both, except at a highly theoretical level. Non-contradiction of hypotheses and agreement with observable phenomena would seem to apply, although observation implies objects. The realm of spirituality is fundamentally subjective, so the epistemological criteria would have to embrace that factor within its logical framework. LRH's definition of theta as having no mass, no wavelength, no position in space, etc. might be validatable when seen according to the above considerations. Your thoughts? Okay, thanks, Michael. A um, couple points on this, because uh, clearly this is, you know, asking me about spirituality and the existence of theta, uh, which is a Scientology concept of spirituality, and uh, and I don't particularly uh, believe that that is a the, the case anymore. It's not my subjective reality or uh, idea that that is how things are. So, because of that, I'm able to look at it a little more objectively than I used to. And uh, so the first thing I want to say is you ask in your question about how uh, it's logical to assume that the thing that is looking at a thing is not the thing that's being looked at, subject, object. And yet, I will challenge that assumption. That is not necessarily true at all. A thing can look at itself. Uh, and if we go with the idea that a brain is, you know, where the thinking and the consciousness lie, uh, is, you know, through a neural network is the seat of consciousness, then it is capable of examining itself. And so, yeah, sure, you have a, a subject and object, but they're not different things. The consciousness is right in here, and it's looking at itself and the way that it operates when you study neurology and brain anatomy and things like that. That's an explanation for consciousness. I don't know if it's the right one or not. I'm kind of still, you know, for me, the, the you know, I, I haven't really studied it in enough detail to know what the literature on this is or the science 
on uh, neurology and consciousness is. As far as I can tell, it's all still kind of being figured out. Um, we haven't had any like, you know, ah, sort of moment as far as like, okay, we found it. This is where consciousness is, right? Um, and so you still get away with these uh, sort of subjective ideas that maybe there's a thing that's not a thing called theta or a thetan and it exists and there is no way for us to sense measure or experience it except uh, through our subjective you know reality in other words we can close our eyes or not close our eyes and sort of imagine that we're on the other side of the room looking at ourselves and oh that proves that i'm a spiritual entity well it doesn't prove any such thing and so uh you know when you have something when you have a subjective experience uh you know uh, then there are uh, always multiple explanations for what could have just occurred that could have caused that subjective experience to happen. It could be neurons, it could be spirituality, it could be blue smurfs hypnotized you. I mean, it could be 20 different things that you could dream up as explanations. And in fact, if you go from religion to religion to religion to religion, or uh, you know, woo, woo philosophy, right? In other words, sort of supernatural, sort of you know, uh, alternative ideas of things, uh, and you go from one to the next to the next to the next to the next, you will get differing explanations for the same subjective experience. And any one of them could be correct or they could all be wrong. Uh, they can't all be right, but they could all be wrong. It could be that we simply haven't measured or invented the uh, magnifying glass or, or lens or microscope or whatever that's necessary to be able to uh, perceive or detect what it is that consciousness actually consists of. And until we can, and until you can repeat that observation to others who are also not biased, then you're not, if, if you can't do that, then as I understand it, you're not doing science. And this is where faith and science are always getting mixed up and meshed up, right? As people try to start taking objective science and apply it to something that, you know, is a faith. It's a belief. It's, it's not a, a, a reality. And, uh, you know, not in the same sense that that light is a reality, right? I can look at it. I can touch it. I can feel it. I can smell it. I can measure it, I can assign it uh, lumens and volts and amperes and all kinds of things to describe and, and recreate and reconstruct that light. So there's no question about what it is, what makes it up, how it exists, what, you know, that we, we know all that. And, um, what, you know, when it comes to spirituality, we have no such measuring devices. And there's another thing, another point I wanted to bring up on this, which is there was a guy in the early 70s, whose name I forget, who was trying to do experiments with, with uh, uh, psychotropics, with, with uh, psilocybin and with, with uh, what is that, mushrooms and LSD and those kind of things, because he thought that the perceptions and, uh, you know, things you become aware of when you are high were... Uh, perfectly plausible, perfectly rational, reasonable things that were scientific observations and should somehow be, uh, you know, given validity and studied as though it was actual science, right? Uh, well, that's nice, except when two different people, the problem immediately became 
that you could give the same drug in the same quantity to two different people and they both have completely different perceptions and experiences while under the effects of those drugs. So how do you, you know, how, in what way can you ever repeat the perceptions and experiences that you had while you were high so that somebody else can, you know, perceive and experience the same things you did? It's, it's damn near impossible. I've never heard of two people having the same drug trip, right? Uh, so, you know, that, that's not how science is done. And, uh, and without getting into, you know, more stuff beyond my depth or whatever, I will just leave it at that and hope that what I just said <laughs> makes some sense to you uh, as far as trying to, you know, put, aco put across the argument that theta, which is, you know, no mass, no wavelength, no location in space or time, is somehow a thing that I'm going to somehow be able to uh, sense, measure, or experience or believe in because of some scientific process. Well, it doesn't, no, it doesn't, doesn't really work that way. UB40 Music. I really do love your work that you've done on Scientology and I'm somewhat heartbroken that you grew up in the cult. I do have a question though. I know you think critically about religion and cults all the time. I personally think all religions are man-made and do nothing but harm and cause division among nations. But do you think critically about some of the science theories that have been put forward by scientists which have established themselves as fact even though they are still just theories like gravity, evolution slash biology, string theory, and others as examples. Oh, you bet I do. And I want to be really clear about this because some people have accused me of making science a religion and I worship at the altar of science and this kind of thing. No, come on guys, you know, I'm, I'm not that dumb. Um, you know, I didn't go from one cult to another, okay? I took great pains to not do that. Uh, I have a very critical eye toward science and the practice of science. When I'm pushing science or rationality or critical thinking on my channel, I'm pushing that from a theoretical level, from a, from a level of, of guidelines and rules and, and ways of looking at things or ways of measuring things. I'm not looking at it from the viewpoint of science is some, you know, doesn't make mistakes, is perfect, is a flawless system. I mean, give me a break. Human beings are executing science. So there are going to be every problem that you ever have with human beings is going to exist in the world of science. And they do. There is egotism. There is corruption. There, is, there are people who lie about the results of their experiments or their studies. There are people who misinterpret the, the measuring or the, or the work that they do. And they make honest mistakes too. And they come to faulty conclusions. Every day that happens. So I have no idea at all that science is some, you know, uh, altar to worship at or that it is infallible. Um, you know, there are no absolutes when it comes to this stuff. The reason I love science is because it gives us a, a, a repeatable, predictable method of coming, of acquiring information validating or proving that information and thereby coming across, you know, what we might as well call truth, right? Or something that at least works. We have something that is, that, that makes sense. Now, it only takes one exception to disprove a theory. Uh, Einstein is famously quoted on that, right? The, you know, you can, you can run a, a, a thousand experiments, a hundred experiments, and every one of them could prove a theory right, 
and one, one well-executed experiment that proves it wrong, that's it. That theory is out the window. It's done. And we're not going to talk about it anymore. And we're now going to move on to some other theory. We're going to have to come up with something else. And that has happened over and over and over and over and over again in science. And that's why I like science so much. Because it's willing to accept that mistakes are not only, you know, happen, but they're a usual part of the process and they are folded into the scientific method and taken account of so that you can come up with better theories and better results and better ideas. And that's what we've done. You know, gravity is a very uh, malleable idea right now. I mean, it was grab, you know, last year we were learning about gravity waves. I was first time I was ever reading about that. I found it fascinating. Well, it took them a hundred years to figure out some experiments that would actually show whether gravity waves were a thing or not. You know, sometimes it takes time to figure this stuff out and figure out how do you go about trying to prove these things. So, uh, and again, those things that, you know, the methods you use to go about doing that stuff could be faulty. And, uh, and so, you know, that's why the peer review process, uh, when executed properly, is such a brilliant idea, right? When it's executed badly, when there are vested interests, when there's money on the line, when there's, you know, these kind of problems, then, you know, again, corruption and lies and deceit and all kinds of nonsense enter into the subject. And that throws a lot of doubt into certain uh, scientific principles, let's say. Uh, and that's just, again, kind of part of the process, right? Uh, and ego and that sort of thing plays into it, too. You know, there's this saying that, uh, that you kind of have to, you know, wait for the, the latest authority to die. I, I forgot what the saying is, but, some, but basically it's that, you know, you get authorities in a field like science, uh, some science, any science, medicine, physics, geology, whatever. And, you know, people being people and, you know, going into the pack, you know, leader, follower mentality will start, you know, pushing a, a particular person's ideas uh, and it becomes a war of personalities. And then that person, and then a new person comes along with new ideas. But if they don't match up with that guy's ideas, then they're all wrong automatically. And so that's kind of, th and so you have to wait for that guy to go away or die. And then the new generation can come along with the new ideas and, uh, and kind of replace out the old guard and, and, and science moves forward. And I wish it didn't, you know, I wish humans didn't have egos. <laughs> I wish it wasn't that way. But it is, you know, and so we have all the foibles and, and fallibilities of that. So anyway, I think I made the point. And, uh, and so that's how I critically look at science. And I think that's how everybody should critically look at science. And maybe I've never said all that before, but there you go. Jonathan Mark. Scientology recruits people claiming to be ministers, rabbis, Sikh, religious leaders, etc. to make videos and issue statements on how wonderful Scientology is. Are these supposed non-Scientologist clergymen paid? Okay, well, immediate disclaimer is I have to say that I don't know for sure, and I can't say, I don't imagine that it would be, that even if some of them are paid, that it would be 100% of them that are paid. And some of the ways that they might be paid might not just be cold hard cash in their bank account. Uh, academics, for example, are hungry for grant money, and so Scientology might give them a grant 
in exchange for a favorable paper about how Scientology is simply the latest new religious movement and everything is, you know, wonderful and copacetic, uh, copaspectic, whatever the word is for Scientology. Uh, as well as um, Shurinrikyo and, and the, you know, JWs and all the rest of them, right? There are academic apologists out there. But there are also, uh, amongst those academic apologists, are people who really truly believe that groups like Scientology are just another religion and freedom of religion applies, and they don't look too closely or deeply into it because they have their biases that if it's a religion, then it deserves to exist no matter how crazy, wild, or random its beliefs are. Uh, but more importantly, no matter how abusive it is. And that's where I draw the line. And I think I made that clear in my whole series on deconstructing uh, that academic work called Scientology, uh, which was, of course, about Scientology. Um, as far as my, my, my understanding of, of those religious leaders and stuff uh, who do the treatises and papers and, and apologetics pieces about Scientology, uh, some of them are paid and some of them are not. Um, and I don't, I can't say because I didn't work on those lines when that was going on, how the exchange works with those guys. But, um, but I do, I have heard from people that I trust and who were involved or are in the academic world that grant money is a wonderful bribe for uh, somebody who already has a proclivity to speak favorably about Scientology. And, uh, and so that can be used. Um, and that's kind of everything I know about that, so I'm not going to really say a whole lot more about it than that. Ian, I have just read an article on the Guardian website that the Church of Scientology in St. Hill Green in the UK has just felled some trees in a designated area of outstanding beauty, angering local people as they didn't even seek the local authorities' consent, a legal requirement. My question is, therefore, do the Church of Scientology people not care about what neighbors think even if this could further tarnish their already dubious reputation? Or is it cultural misunderstanding? Perhaps the decision to cut these trees came from someone who is not local to the area or knowledgeable of UK laws. Could the order come from somebody in Florida or California? If so, why? Interestingly, in the article it was stated that according to the 2011 census, there are 2,418 people in England and Wales who declare themselves to be Scientologists fewer than those who claim that their religion is heavy metal. It seems to me that keeping a stately home in England is not worth the effort for so few people. Any reason why they do this? Okay, well, you got a little two-for-one here. Um, as far as the trees go, and I know this was asked a while ago, but um, I would say I, I can't sit here and say for sure where such an order would have come from because it could have come locally or it could have come from management or it could have come straight from David Miscavige. Um, regardless, if an order is issued by a person who has the seniority in Scientology to be running other people, especially in the Sea Org, uh, those orders are going to be complied with. And uh, what the WOGs think, in other words, the non-Scientologists, doesn't really matter a whole lot if the Scientologists feel justified or can rationalize whatever it is that they're trying to do. The, one of the purposes of the Office of Special Affairs is to make things happen uh, in some kind of legal fashion, or, or if it's going to be illegally done, minimize the threat to the church in doing so. And they probably did a threat assessment of what it would take, what would happen if they cut down those trees and said, yeah, okay, maybe we'll get a fine 
or maybe some neighbors will be angry with us. What else is new? Uh, whatever, you know, and so they decided, they made decision that, you know, for whether it was David Miscavige or whether it was the local seniority, uh, you know, senior people uh, on the ground there, or maybe it was somebody from LA who issued that order. Regardless, they, you know, weighed the options and decided this is what we're going to do because this is what we want to do. And that's pretty much how they roll in Scientology. Uh, if they want to do something, they're just going to do it. And, uh, you know, if there are some negative consequences, well, too bad, right? Uh, now, as far as the um, number of people in England and that property, St. Hill Manor was L. Ron Hubbard's home, in addition to being the place which uh, almost all of modern Scientology was developed at. So it would be one of the last places that the Church of Scientology International would give up in terms of property. Uh, even if there were only five people in England who were Scientologists, they would hold on to that property till the bitter end because it has deep historical significance for Scientology uh, like, like very few other places do. In fact, I'd say it's probably, uh, in terms of historical significance, probably of greater importance than almost anywhere out except maybe Clearwater, Florida. And of course, they're never going to give up the flag land base in Clearwater because that's their cash cow. That's where they make all their money. That Scientology can't operate and would never survive without Clearwater running the way that it does. So that's, that would be number one on the list. But number two would, would probably be uh, St. Hill Manor, right? Even more so than the San Jacinto base, the gold base or even the LA PAC base, although the PAC base would definitely be number three on the list. Uh, the PAC base would only be number three because L. Ron Hubbard never actually lived and worked there like he did in England. So I think that would be uh, just one, but one very important reason uh, why that would be held on to despite the low numbers of Scientologists in England. First name, last name. So, in light of this historically contextual analysis of the OT3 level, I have a question. Is it beneficial and or effective to use the Xenu myth as a tool to assist those inside the cult to awaken? Alternately, is the use of the Xenu myth helpful as a prophylactic for those who might otherwise seriously consider a commitment to the cult? Wogs. I ask this two-part question because you have the experience to clarify my understanding of how the Xenu myth might impact these two groups of people. I take it that those who are already clear may simply tune out and shut down at the mention of this mythology, but for the neophytes or the prospective victims, the question may be stilled, distilled thus, to Xenu or not to Xenu? That is the question. Okay guys, no flash answers this week. You gotta send me some more flash answer questions because I got all these big long questions to answer and no real short ones. So uh, if you have your flash answer type questions, uh, go ahead and send them to me now, okay? All right, now as far as the to Xenu or not Xenu, it's a good question. Um, I have always discouraged using the Xenu narrative in an, in an effort to try to dissuade Scientologists from doing Scientology. It's just not gonna work. The lower level people who haven't reached the Xenu narrative yet simply aren't going to believe you because it sounds so insane and they've never heard of it and they're never going to hear of it until they get to OT3. 
And if you give them too much of it and they start going on the internet and looking for stuff on it, they're endangering their own bridge and their own, the bridge to total freedom, right? Their own progress in Scientology. And they are endangering ever getting to the Xenu narrative because those OT levels are closely guarded secrets in Scientology. And if you go online and start looking that stuff up, you'll be deemed a security risk by the Church of Scientology and you'll never get access to those OT levels. So that's kind of a thing. And I'm pretty sure that people in Scientology are made aware of that pretty early on, especially now that it's so widespread out on the internet. I, I can only imagine the measures that are being taken within the church to you know, run information control on people looking stuff up on Google. Uh, but it must be pretty extreme because they got, you know, you know, they got a lot of work to do in order to keep people's peepers off of that stuff. Uh, as far as uh, non-Scientologists go, though, yeah, that's a that's a good idea. I mean, people need to know, and it should be. I mean, this is the this is the thing that we've always made the argument about with the Xenu narrative and the confidential information is that Scientology doesn't. You know, they, they're, they're not about, you don't have informed consent going into this group. This is what undue influence is all about, is you go in there under, under the, you know, idea of one thing, and then there's a bait and switch that happens halfway through, and now suddenly you're on this whole other trek that you had no idea even existed, right? And if we believe a lot of the exes who have come out of Scientology who did OT3, then, you know, a lot of people who reach that level just go, oh my God, what the hell is this? Uh, and they have a real hard time believing it, a real hard time, you know, moving on in Scientology with that. But they, you know, shrug their shoulders and move on because cognitive dissonance is a beautiful thing. Um, but I think that it's a great way to talk to somebody at the lowest levels who's either just foraying into the church or you know, is is maybe considering it or, you know, wondering what Scientology is all about, they should definitely be exposed to that information because they need to know what the real core beliefs of Scientology are. And the Xenu narrative is one of the core beliefs. And the important part of it is not Xenu. It's the body phaetons and the, the whole exorcism of those body phaetons from you and the idea that your body literally consists of body phaetons and that this is something you're going to be doing for hundreds and hundreds and maybe even thousands of hours, uh, you know, telepathically contacting these body phaetons and getting rid of them. Uh, that is not a small part of Scientology. It is OT3, uh, 4, 5, and 7. And OT6 is learning how to do OT7. So it's a, it's a big chunk of the Scientology uh, methodology and belief system, and people should know about that before they get involved in it. Uh, and if they find that endlessly fascinating and can't wait to get their BTs uh, audited out, Great, more power to them. Good luck and, and so much with your, uh, I hope you got a million dollars to throw away to the church. So uh, that's, you know, I think that's pretty much everything I can say about that. Okay, guys, uh, that is all for our show this week. I hope you found this entertaining, informative, and educational. Uh, thanks for coming around and I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.